Everybody, this is Lucky Licious, and you're listening to Eat My Pagan Ass, a pagan podcast by and for pagans, and that's you. And if you're not a pagan and you're listening, welcome. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't take anything I say too seriously. I think I should always put that disclaimer in here. I I'm, I don't know I don't know nothing about nothing, but I just know what I know, and so I talk about it, and that seems to get by just fine. And in the process, sometimes, occasionally, I get on the show one or two or three people who know a thing or two, and they've written a couple books, or they've done a couple soul-searching journeys, or they've got quite a bit of experience leading circles and meditations and whatever it is that gives us knowledge in this life. It could just be that they happen to be really handy in the kitchen, and no matter what they make, it seems to make people feel good, and they're imbuing this sense of like love and health in their food, and it's some sort of hidden magic going on there. Uh, and and that's just that's that you know there's magic comes in all forms and sizes and I'm really appreciative of that. And speaking of all forms and sizes, I'm really appreciative of all the wonderful people in the pagan community, and that means you. Yes, um, I'm so glad you're listening. Welcome. It is the Yule episode. It is December seventeenth, two thousand twelve. We have just a few more days until the Mayan end of the world cataclysm takes takes effect. I personally don't subscribe. Never have to the idea that December twenty first, two thousand twelve, was going to be the end of, <clears throat> the end of the world, per se. But I do hope that the awareness that's around this date. And um, the recognition that comes with awareness that, you know, our world is far from perfect. And in fact, we've slid down some very dangerous paths and are in a precarious position right now, particularly as it comes to the environment and animals um, and the whole circle of life that seems to really be in danger. The awareness that we have from that, hopefully will help us change our behaviors and change our actions and modify the relationship that we have with the earth and in the modification of that find a deeper balance um, and enrich our own self-awareness in the process and that might be one of the ways that we as a species could move forward and, and learn to restrike a balance with the rest of life so here's my hope that we do that like pretty freaking soon because i don't know if you've been paying attention to the news kids but uh, the situation's looking pretty dire, and now the scientific consensus is that we have just a matter of years before we can make uh, necessary changes to our consumeristic um, patterns before we uh, before we set off a chain of cataclysmic environmental events from which we cannot return. And you know what? The Earth will survive. I just don't know if people will in the process, and that would just be a sad thing, because I think people are cool, I think pagan people are cool, and I think pagan podcasts are cool, and I think the world should just continue to have them forever and ever and ever, all right? So, recycle, uh, use less gas, um, and stuff. Okay, no, seriously, there are a lot of great resources out there to help you learn to live in harmony with our planet. So check them out. Just Google, like, how can I be a better human being? And just see where that takes you. Uh, some people have talked about composting and returning your biodegradable uh, food waste to local farmers markets as just one way of doing it. You know, ride your bike to work if you if you can. If you don't have safe green lanes in your town, form a committee and start doing I don't know, there's like a million ways to do whatever, but just do something. At least commit to doing one thing different. And I'm going to do a lot of thinking actually over the next couple of weeks um, about what that one thing is that I'm going to do. And then I'll share that with you guys and you know, let you know how that's going. Uh, I know one person alone can't save the planet um, per se, but hey, anything's possible. So, but generally speaking, we all got to do this together and we all got to do our part. And uh, however small that part is, when, it, when you have 7 billion people doing something small, it adds up really fast into something really, really big and wonderful. 
So, I guess my Yuletide prayer is that uh, in the coming years we are able to realign ourselves and rebalance ourselves and how we um, create and uh, how we destroy, and that we learn to do both of those things in a smarter way so that we can leave this planet intact for future generations of people. Okay, that's my environmental message for the day. Aside from that, you know, I, I got nothing here. It's Yule, and um, I'm just doing this because I wanted to check in and say hi and let you know that I'm, I'm wishing each and every one of you a very special, warm Yule. I encourage you to reconnect with um, your, your local tribes, your local communities, if you have them. Um, if you're isolated somewhere and all you have is the internet, then, you know, get into that again and just, you know, reestablish the bonds. Go beyond Facebook, you know, <laughs> like read, read live journal entries if your friends are into that or just, you know, start, write someone a really nice long email and just tell them that you're thinking about them or send them a card or, or do something to let someone know right now that you're thinking about them and they're very special to you because it's all those little points of light that we share with one another that keep us alive, sustain us, or uh, keep our spirits aglow. Um, and at this darkest, darkest time of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, that's a very important thing. And that's the whole reason why we tend to come together this time of year, because the nights are long and dark and cold and windy, and the wolves are howling hungry, and the food is, you know, salted and cold, and, you know, just, you know, there's just not much else going on. Everything out there is just getting bleak and gray. And who knows how terrible the winter to come is going to be. And so now's the time. Tell the people you love that you love them and why, and do something that will help them remember you in the event that you don't make it through the winter. I know that's grim, but, you know, hey, these are the winter nights, and that's that's the time to get real about what's happening. Um, you know, we can be all airy-fairy, light and gay, uh, you know, come springtime, right? And we'll get plenty of that, and that's great, and we deserve to have that. But right now, it doesn't hurt just to take a step back and go, okay, like, um, okay, <laughs> what do we do about that? So one thing that I've been doing lately that's kind of been helping sustain me is I've been really involved with the local pagan community. Um, in a way that I haven't been, I would say, for about eight years. It's, I took kind of a, a break after um, you know an experience I had with a large group. It was a wonderful experience. It just didn't end well. Um, and you know we all get bruised sometime in the process. But I've since picked myself up and started over. And um, it's been going very well. And I've been finding lots of unique opportunities to be part of the community and give back to the community and just participate in things that are going on. So as you know, I hosted Pagan Pride Day. We talked about that last episode, New York City Pagan Pride Day. I was the MC, and that was just a lot of fun. And in the process of that, I met, of course, a bunch of other local people, and you know, great conversations have started, and we're beginning to um, come up with some ideas for some new projects that everyone can get involved in. And Fortunately, you, the listeners, are going to be a beneficiary of that because I'm involved, and that means there's going to be a podcast involved. So look forward to that. That's kind of a new thing that's brewing in, in Lucky's little magic cauldron of things to come. <laughs> um, another thing that I've done is I've attended a lecture series that was hosted in uh, Brooklyn at the First Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society. I know, it's the UU. They're everywhere and they're fabulous. <laughs> Seriously, here's just a little plug, and it's not just because my. Uh, it's let me say it's not just because I, I don't have personal affiliations with the Unitarian Church in uh, New York City, but I do uh, now. I didn't even know about this this place before. I didn't. I, I'd never heard of them, um, and I just wasn't interested. Frankly, I wasn't looking there. And lo and behold, as soon as I learned it was there, I realized that so many of my very best pagan friends, the most like kind of down to earth people with families and jobs, and you know just living life and and practicing their paganism on a on a regular basis, um, they all tended to uh, be in UU churches in their area because they wanted that um, broader sustained sense of community and, and wanted a culture of raising children together um, within a religious and spiritual context without adhering to any one specific religion, you know, or set of dogmas. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, the UU Church in Brooklyn hosted this series. The series was the um, 
It was inspired by the recent publishing of Bull of Heaven by Michael Lloyd, which I've talked about before, and we interviewed Michael on this podcast, where uh, he has written a very thorough biography of uh, a gentleman named Eddie Bozinski, who was a gay uh, pagan here in New York in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, who founded a number of traditions that are still in existence today and have um, grown quite prolifically. Uh, and um, the book is, it's of course about Eddie's life and uh, the struggles that he faced and the controversies he was embroiled in. And, um, but, but, but more than that, it goes beyond Eddie and, and paints a very rich context of what was happening in the time, just generally in the common culture, what was happening specifically in New York City and in Greenwich Village with the beats and the hippies and kind of that whole transition, um, you know, kind of political awareness, feminism, gay liberation, and the rise of witchcraft um, here, in, here in New York. And uh, so it's a very wonderful, rich history of um, us. And pretty much, I think most people who are pagan or Wiccan um, would benefit by, by reading this book and seeing um, some of the, the, the challenge points that our community faced and reading about some of the, the solutions or the failures that happened and, and learning from both of those things so that we don't repeat them. But one of the um, consequences of Michael's uh, astounding work um, in putting this book together, it was you know the product of years and years and years of work, was that uh, he hosted a, um, a book launch party here in New York City, which also was a memorial to Eddie Bozinski, the first formal memorial offered to him by and for the pagan community. And um, many, many members from the community who hadn't come together or spoken, had you know personal problems, running back years and years, decades, all came together. And as a result of this community um, coming together, these issues found a way of being worked out finally after many of these years. And so um, one of the other things to come out of that was this idea to host a lecture series that would honor the 40th anniversary of the uh, Pagan Way lectures that were hosted by Herman Slater and Eddie Bozinski at the First UU Church in Brooklyn Heights in 1972. And um, the, the notable thing about that, which uh, Michael Lloyd um, talks about in his book, is this was one of the first known instances of a, a mainstream religion reaching out to the pagan community um, from a place of respect and offering them a venue for interfaith dialogue, as well as just letting, allowing them to use facilities, as simple as that, giving us a place to gather and teach. And those lectures were seminal toward building the New York City pagan community at the time, um, to growing the influence of the magical child in the warlock shop as um, a fo focus for the community at the time. And um, a lot of great, famous, um, you know, pagans went through those doors and uh, have since gone on to accomplish a lot of great things for all of us, and we're all the, all the beneficiaries of that. So this lecture series was held there, and um, so a group of pagans here decided to host a 40th anniversary. And the uh, program was really quite interesting. It was sponsored by the New York City Pagan Alliance, or the New York Pagan Alliance, and uh, the First Unitarian Church of Brooklyn Heights. Um, and um, yeah, so they had four four lectures. The first one was given by Michael Lloyd, of course, author of Bull of Heaven. And um, there was a kind of um, preface given by Margot Adler, who's author of Drawing Down the Moon, who writes the preface to, um, or the foreword to Bull of Heaven. Let me take a breath here. I'm, you know, I'm so excited right now because you can hear like there's a nice quality in the audio recording. And that's because I finally figured out how to use this new microphone that I purchased, which didn't go so well in the last episode with Courtney Weber. Um, but I think I've got those kinks figured out. So yay. Um, congratulations. You get sweet lucky in your ears. Anyway, back to the lecture series. Um, yeah, the first one was Michael Lloyd and Margot Adler, and that was such an interesting discussion about the historical events that are described in Bull of Heaven and um, overlaid by the personal experiences of Margot Adler as one of the people who uh, was part of that movement back then, and kind of just seeing a, an historical perspective on that. The second lecture was given by uh, Gary Suto who is a, a Minoan high priest and a high priest of the um, New York City Gay Men's Open Pagan Magic Circle and founder of that group. 
um, among other things. And then also Lady Rhea, who is a high priestess of the Minoan Sisterhood, among other things, um, as well as a purveyor of pagan goods here in, in New York City with her shop. Um, the two of them spoke on male-female polarity in magic and is it is it necessary, which was a very interesting um, discussion on the um, particular, I mean, there was a gay and lesbian slant to it since both of them identify that way. And um, they brought a lot of that into the discussion, which was germane because um, originally I think the, the gay and lesbian issues were the, were the things that triggered awareness around polarity and um, having a, a Wiccan structure that was male-female and describing things only in terms of God-Goddess as, you know, uh, on the physical plane being actual male and female, you had to have the opposite genitalia and, and you had to work that way in circle. Um, and that uh, same-sex lovers, um, lovers of the same sex kind of questioned that and said, you know, we, we feel that we have both male and female within us. And uh, it doesn't matter the the external manifestation of your gender. Um, it's about the, the balance you hold of those two energies within you. That's important. And so that's created, you know, and opened up a lot of new avenues for people. And now that's coming to its um, conclusion with the um, increasing role or awareness around the role of transgender people, uh, once again, in magic. And uh, it's probably always been um, that way. But now our community is seeing seeing the, the value and, and the interesting individual paths um, that that transgender people play and travel in, in our community. And so that's, that's interesting too. Um, the third lecture, which um, I have to say was my favorite, just because I'm completely um, biased, <laughs> is, uh, was a talk given by um, Silky Oishi, who's high priestess of the Grailwood Coven in New York City, and Courtney Weber, who's high priestess of the Novices of the Old Ways, and their um, central coven, which I don't remember the name of the coven, but the two of them spoke about pagan ethics and how we walk the talk and how we live um, ethically as pagans and how we allow our spirituality to inform our decisions and choices that we make in life. So Silky gave a great overview of just you know what ethics is and how ethical decisions are made, and then as well as how we accept the outcomes um, and take responsibility for the outcomes of those decisions. And then, um, you know, she talked also about specifically how covens and individuals within the craft make those decisions. And then um, Courtney spoke on the kind of practical side of things um, into how you can put your ethics into action um, to help take environmental activism to um, a spiritual level, how you can take, you know, composting and, and all those other things that we need to be doing, how you can, you know, call your governor to stop an oil pipeline from coming in. So Courtney did talk about that on um, our interview with her back at Samhain this year, um, but she, she spoke a little bit more about it um, during this lecture, and that was exciting. And then the final lecture was also quite wonderful. It was a... Um, talk uh, again by Margot Adler. This time she was uh, the, the headliner, um, along with Matthew Sawicki, who is a, a longtime member of the pagan community, both in New York and in LA and points in between. And uh, he's really had quite an interesting story going you know, to London and, and around. And so he's gotten a real um, taste for varieties of pagan culture throughout the world. And um, so the two of them spoke also again about, you know, the history of things, kind of the seminal moments in the development of pagan culture and the movement, and then, um, you know, kind of just riffed on where things are going and, and what, what, you know, what, what is happening now and next and how exciting that is and kind of what, what some of the main challenges we as a community face. And so uh, that was another wonderful lecture. And all four of those lectures were recorded and, um, to my knowledge, are going to be made available Someone's going to make them available. I'm not mentioning any names, but um, I'm sure you'll hear about it on this podcast when those lectures are available. So please stay tuned. They're all really wonderful there, and they're an important um, documentation of um, some leading thinkers and, and um, historical perspectives on, on where our community has come from and where it's headed. So I look forward to telling you more about that when those are available. Um, but just as a side, not only were the lectures fun, but it was just great to get in there and, and um, see 
all those wonderful people from all over the New York City area and parts of New Jersey coming in uh, for these lectures. And, um, you know, that's just always a nice thing. And uh, to continue with the Yule theme and, and coming together, the last thing I'll talk about is um, it is Yule. And I'm excited that my coven Grailwood is hosting a Yule uh, ritual this coming Friday on the 21st. And uh, I will be facilitating and that's going to be fun. And we're doing our Norse theme. We're, we're normally a Welsh fairy tradition, um, primarily Welsh. But this time we, we're going with a Norse theme because, you know, Yule is a Norse, a Scandinavian um, festival. And we really love all of the, that sort of thing, especially me. So I'm really excited that we're going to be working with um, Balder and Skadi um, in, this, in this ritual. As part of that, uh, I will be reading a um, the story of the death of Balder, and I'm going to do that reading for you guys now. Um, but we'll be we'll be acting this out in pantomime as part of the the ritual work on Friday night. So if you're in the New York City area, come around. The ritual starts at seven o'clock at the Producers Club um, on West Forty Fifth Street in Manhattan. That's seven o'clock on Friday. Be there, be square. So uh, to no further ado, um, let me just wish you all a wonderful Yuletide. I hope um, you are able to take this moment to open your eyes and open your heart and look deep within and find those things in your own darkness that need to be exposed to light. Bring those out and then act on it and change on it. Effect change within yourself and that way we'll, we'll change the world. And then just be happy the sun is coming back already. And um, that's just, you know, that's a good thing from my perspective because I'm a Leo and I just don't like it when the sun is at its weakest point. I kind of feel a little, you know, vulnerable and I don't like it. <laughs> oh, kitties, uh, have a wonderful Yule. I'm going to take you out with some Yuletide cheer, some music, um, including a song called The Snow Queen, which is sung by uh, our very own Silky Oishi, a.k.a. Silky Lirazel, High Priestess of the Grailwood Coven. Um, this is a song that she performs with her partner, Vincent Michello, on guitar and vocals. Um, it's a great kind of wintry song, pagany. Um, I know you're going to dig it. Uh, so that's coming up. And then you will hear the story of the death of Balder, as interpreted by yours truly, and um, I, I take some liberties, let me say, with some of the of the narrative there, but that's fine. It's based mostly on true myth, as far as myth can be. So there were some sources, a number of sources out there that I got this from. So um, you know, if if there are any points in it actually that you you think uh, need to be corrected, please by all means email me at eatbypaganass at gmail .com. Let me know what I said wrong, so I could correct myself and 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 preach the truth. Can I get a hallelujah up in here? No? How about a hallelujah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Happy Yule, pagans. Blessed be. Mwah. They take to wing 
The Death of Balder Balder, son of Odin and Frigga, was beloved of all the gods. Shining, youthful, and beautiful beyond description, he bore the promise of a golden, prosperous, secure future, not only for the gods in Asgard, but for all the beings who dwelt within the Nine Worlds. Balder, you see, was thought to be the crowning achievement of all the millennia of struggle and sacrifice of gods and humans, of elves and dwarves, even of whites, trolls, and the mighty ancient giants. For Balder was light and truth, and these, the worlds believed, would ultimately win the day.
Balder resided in his comfortable hall with his beloved wife, Nana. Together, their knowledge of herbs and medicines brought health and wellness to the people of Midgard. And so, even here, Balder and Nana were beloved. And for many long years, all was well. Trust, harmony, peace, and prosperity were the mark of this golden age, this age of Balder's ascendancy. And then something went horribly, devastatingly wrong. Balder, the hope of the gods, began to dream of his own death. These dreams disturbed him. They were vivid, real, and he would wake from them, terrified, shaking off the icy fog of Niflheim that filled his dark dreams. Comforting words and soothing caresses from his wife Nana could not banish the image of the half-rotted grin of Hell, goddess of death, arms wide and welcoming, as if ready to embrace him. I dreamed the impossible, he told Nana. I saw a darkness coming for me, for all of us. But it was merely a dream, my love, Nana consoled. Would that it were. But I have dreamed it three times and know it to be real. We must tell father and mother. When Frigga heard of Balder's story, she laughed it aside as if it were some kind of mistake. Merely indigestion, she insisted. Perhaps Iduna is not tending her apples as well she should, and you ate but a worm. That is the cause of your night shadows. But Odin knew better. Denial could not move his grim visage, for he too had seen the signs of trouble. No, he whispered. No, it is true, my wife. Our son is in danger. Frigga blanched for a moment, remembering that she too had seen the murky ripple in the web of Weird while sitting at her spinning wheel one evening at dusk. She refused to acknowledge it then, but now, with her son's fearful eyes and her husband's confirmation, she could deny it no longer. And just as the weight of the seemingly inevitable began to cave in upon her, she turned to the hearth, her eyes alight with purpose, and she flung her flagon of mead into the fire, turning the flames a brilliant green, and yelled, No! This shall not be so! My son will live, and he will reign! This I, Frigga, Queen of Asgard, do decree upon my solemn oath, Baldur shall not die! I will stop this. She turned to look upon her son. Her eyes welled with water but did not tear. She cut swiftly across the stone floor and embraced him. Looking directly into his eyes, she said, I swear it. And then with a flick of her long golden hair, she smiled again, exhaled a pert, well then, and assumed the role of hostess, offering her son and his wife a cup of golden mead she moved as if nothing were wrong, but Odin, who knew her well, saw that she took care to refill her own cup first and take a deeper quaff than usual. Frigga would hear no more of Baldur's dream that night. Early the next morning, before Suna's glow touched the horizon, Frigga called an emergency council of all the gods. For good measure, she invited some friendly giants as well as the chief dwarves and elven kings. We must not let the death of Baldur come to pass, Frigga implored her hastily assembled council. His death will be the doom of us all, she reminded them, for it was long ago prophesied that when Baldur was in Hell's realm, the twilight of the gods would begin, the great and terrible Ragnarok, the end of all creation. The eyes of many assembled looked to Odin for wisdom, but his head was cast down, hidden in shadow beneath his dark hood. Look not to my husband, Frigga demanded. He and I both know what lies ahead, yet I will not accept this Orlog, this twisted weird that threatens to claim my son's life and ruin us all. 
It is I who knows what must be done, and as your queen I command you all to aid me, or blood be upon your heads. The gathered host shifted uncomfortably. None desired the prophecy of doom to be fulfilled, yet Odin was the highest, and his will could not be bent. Odin, sensing his wife's precarious position, lifted his hood, revealing his single eye, and spoke. It is true that I have seen that this darkness is inevitable. But though the Norns tell us what is to be, and though the runes spell out our doom, we need not abide this destiny. We must rail against it. We must do what we can, no matter how impossible our victory seems. For in striking against the forces of fate, we do our honored duty as gods and kings, he glanced at Frigga, and queens, and parents, to fight for the right to choose a destiny of our own making. For this is magic. It is for this that we have sacrificed so much. And so I stand with your queen and believe that though our odds are slim, we may yet secure Balder from hell's icy grasp and in that doing save all of creation. This time Frigga could not keep back the tears. Unnoticed by the gathered host, she whispered to her husband, Thank you. A cheer erupted from the crowd, and it was agreed that in that hall they would endeavor to find a way to turn the hand of destiny. Long were the deliberations, heated were the arguments, yet in the end, gods, dwarves, elves, and giants conceived a plan. Frigga, they decided, would carry it out. The next day, before her maidens woke from their slumber, Frigga rose from her bed, donned a green hooded cloak, took a wooden staff in her hand, a magical staff carved with runes, and shrouded in the early morning mist, she quietly exited the protective walls of Asgard. The staff would guide her through all the nine worlds. The council had provided her an exhaustive list of all the creatures in existence that could threaten to harm her beloved son Balder. Long though the journey would be, Frigga swore not to return to Asgard until she had exacted a solemn oath of protection from every dangerous creature, a promise never, ever to harm her Balder. She asked the ash, famous for its bows and arrows, and it so swore. She asked the holly, with its sharpened tips and poison berries, and it so swore. She asked the obsidian, and the tiger blowfish, and the scorpion, and the eagle, and they so swore. Every creature that she asked, stone, animal, plant, troll, or white, agreed never to harm her son. Triumphant in her mission's success, Frigga made her way back to Asgard. Once there, she shared the joyous news that nothing would harm her son. Disaster, it seemed, had been averted, and so the residents of Asgard celebrated, comforted that all would be well. And yet Odin seemed to force his smile, his laughter too loud, his merriment too obvious. Something was not yet right. Still troubled, Odin turned to older, darker magics and sought out the giantess Angraboda. And though she was dead, he determined to find her in death's misty realm. He mounted his eight-legged horse Sleipnir and traveled to the lower world of Niflheim, riding beyond Hell's Gate to find the prophetess. Having been located, she confirmed his fears, swearing that Baldur was next among the gods to enter Hell's domain. Already the dead were preparing their hall to welcome the shining god, she said, a thin smile upon her cold lips. With great haste, Odin sped back along the tree. Back in Asgard, the denizens had grown overconfident, boasting of their ability to alter fate. The gods made sport of Baldur's newfound immunities. They lobbed every dangerous item they could at him, sharp stones, pointed arrows, baleful poisons. Yet none would break its oath to Frigga, so would fall away, never hitting its target. There, in the hall, among the gods at play, Loki seethed. Their hubris sickened him. 
Loki, son of wildfire, and of the leaves that attract lightning strike. Loki, who by his own wiles had won the gods so many of their precious powers. Odin's eight-legged horse that gave him passage between the worlds and his spear. Thor's hammer, Sif's golden hair, Freyr's golden boar and ship, the very walls that protected Asgard from the outdwellers, and the lives of the gods themselves after he thwarted Skadi's vengeance, all was got by Loki's cunning. Too long had the gods enjoyed the fruits of his labor, never to give him credit, never to show him affection. They only ever wanted to exploit his skills, and rarely gave what was his due. How dare they, he muttered to himself. How dare these petulant, ignorant, prideful gods laugh in the face of fate? For Loki believed that destruction is not only destined for all, but that it is necessary in order to move beyond the gods and into a new era. Long had Odin worked to thwart destiny, and now his meddling wife Frigga was at it, too. Well, it's high time we ended this charade, Loki vowed to himself, come what may. Let's set the twilight. If that is our destiny, I shall find a way. And so he changed his form, taking on the appearance of an old beggar woman. Siding up to Frigga, so full in the glory of her victory over death, he goaded her pride, and with flattery he learned a great secret. Frigga boasted that she had obtained sworn oaths of allegiance from all creatures but one, the mistletoe, which she believed too young and incapable of harming her son, and thus not required to swear an oath. Baldur's weakness now known, Loki slipped away from the games. Just beyond the gates of Asgard, a mighty oak grew, and at its base was a young mistletoe plant, the very one Frigga overlooked. Hello, my friend, he spoke to the mistletoe, grinning. My, my, but aren't you a harmless little thing? Well, enjoy that reputation while you can. And he took a knife and whittled the mistletoe to a sharp tip. Returning to the hall, he sought out Hoder, Baldur's blind brother. Playing on Hoder's pride, Loki persuaded him to join in the game. You can do it, Hoder. Here, Loki said. Just throw this, handing him the sharpened mistletoe. I'll even help you aim. And Hoder, the blind god, threw the mistletoe. With Loki's aid, it flew true to its target, striking the shining young god in the heart and felling him instantly. Baldur barely registered what had happened on his face before he was dead and his soul bound for Hell's foggy realm. While the gods stood aghast in disbelief, Loki stole away, retreating from the rage he knew was sure to follow. Oh well, look what I've gone and done now, he said, half giggling as he fled Asgard for the safety of the caves in Jotunheim, the world of giants. Odin returned just then. Seeing his son lying dead upon the ground, he let out a terrible roar. This woke the gods out of their shock and all fell into weeping. Hoder, enraged at having been duped, was given the blame, though Frigga realized that it was her negligence and wagging tongue that sealed her son's fate. And so the hope of the future, the destiny of the world, was consigned to the funeral pyre in a great rite of mourning. His body was laid out in state upon his own boat, Ringhorn, and many treasures and supplies accompanied him. Seeing her husband's body thus, his wife Nana died grief-stricken. The gods laid her body next to Baldur's. All the many who loved him bid him farewell. Odin, the last to give his respects, knelt low to Baldur's ear and whispered something that no one but Odin, and perhaps Baldur, knows. Thor set the boat aflame and cast it into the sea, where it drifted slowly into the mists, a plume of ominous smoke rising skyward in jagged twists. Frigga spoke, her face like stone and her eyes steel. The dreams and prophecies are fulfilled. My Balder now has entered Hell's shadowy land. True. But no prophecy decrees that he must remain there. 
Odin's eyes gleamed, and his raven-cold memory let loose a single, pensive caw. Frigga continued, Who among you wishes to earn all my love? Who will brave Hel's land and offer ransom for the return of my son? The gathering stood quiet, and few could meet their queen's searching gaze. The journey they all knew would be perilous and sure to fail. Who among you will retrieve our most beloved? Another son of Odin, named Hermodur, answered, I shall go, for I am swiftest among you and can outrun death's icy grasp. I shall find my brother and bring him back. And so he was laden with gold and treasure, and Odin lent him Sleipnir, who well knew the way to hell and back. Do not fail me, Frigga implored. Long and dark were the days that followed. Cold and gray was the world, sapped of its life. Grimmest of all was Frigga, listless in her painful loss. In time, Hermodur arrived in Hell's land, and soon enough found Balder and Nana, and offered words of comfort to his brother and his wife. Out of the mists, Hell appeared, and demanded to know the business of this intruder who yet glowed with life, and whose blood coursed hot and red through his body. Hermodur gave the entreaty on behalf of his queen, but Hell was slow to thaw to the terms. The dead are mine, she returned curtly. Then she smiled, and the horror of her half-skeletal, maggot-ridden face chilled Hermitor. But this favor I shall grant your queen. I shall return Balder to her if, and only if, all things, alive or dead, in all the worlds, shed a tear for your slain god. This she must do, or Balder is lost to her forever. Understanding the terms, Hermitor jumped astride Sleipnir and bolted away, returning to Asgard. Frigga was at the gate to greet him and to learn Hel's terms. No sooner had he completed his tale than Frigga was off, and with the assistance of the elves, set out through the nine worlds to beg lamentation for her son from all creatures. This was easy enough, for all beings loved Balder, and so elf, dwarf, white, troll, giant, gods, and all humankind, living and dead, cried tears of grief, all beings but one. Deep in the mountains of Jotunheim, an old giantess refused to cry. What's Balder to me? She replied to Frigga's pleading. Go away! I cared not for him alive, nor care I for him dead. The dead are hells, so let her have him. And she shut the door. And with that, Balder's fate was forever sealed. He remains in hell's realm, awaiting the end of time. The gods eventually learned of Loki's role in the slaying, and some suspected he was the heartless giant who refused to cry in disguise. For this deed, they decreed Loki outlaw and sought him for punishment. When they caught up with him, the sentencing was severe. He was condemned to remain forever bound to a rock, tied with the cold entrails of his own murdered son, while a venomous adder hung above his head by Scotty drips baleful poison upon him for all eternity. Though Loki's wife, Sigyn, holds a bowl to catch the poison, whenever she must rise to empty the bowl, Loki's screams of torment can be heard throughout the Nine Worlds, and his writhing is said to be the cause of earthquakes. With Balder dead, we must now, each of us, find the light within ourselves. For now, at the time of midwinter, though the night is darkest, the sun is returning. Beyond the cataclysm of the Ragnarok, a new world awaits, and a new dawn will come. Thus is it said by scalds of old.